most people love the idea of grace. They like it. We name our churches after grace. We name our children after grace. You'll see hospitals and homeless shelters named after grace. Countless songs and poems and prayers are all about grace. Almost everybody just loves it. They love grace. But I'm here to argue this morning that you don't love it enough. You don't love it enough. I'm here to argue that grace is far better than you realize. We'll be discussing the wonders of grace a million years from now. Ten million years from now. We'll be blown away by the wonders of grace. And one element of grace that is so important for us to understand is this. Why did we need it in the first place? Why give it to us? And where would we be without it? Jesus answers these questions for us in our passage today. If you're new with us, we've been going verse by verse through Mark's gospel. And today we come to Mark chapter 12. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Mark chapter 12. And we're going to look at verses 28 through 34. If you don't have your Bible with you, it's okay. The verses will be behind me on the screen. Mark chapter 12, verses 28 through 34. Mark 12, 28 through 34. Verse 28, one of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying that God is one, and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, and with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. This is God's word. So by way of review, Jesus is in the last week of his life. And today is the last confrontation Jesus has before his death. He's already had a confrontation regarding religion when he overturned the tables in the temple. He's been in a political firestorm when they questioned him about his loyalty to Caesar. Last week we saw him get into a theological confrontation regarding the afterlife. And today's confrontation is a legal one. What does God's law have to do with God's kingdom? What does God's law actually require of us? These are the questions at stake today. And Jesus gives us a stunning answer. A stunning answer, as he usually does to questions asked of him. 
He answers this question in three ways. By giving us a premise, a problem, and a promise. Now, I swear, I don't really like to alliterate sermon points. I don't like rhyming sermon points or starting them all with the same. But this is a little too obvious for me to pass up. <laughs> so I just had to roll with it, and I apologize. I don't like trying to force, like, force alliteration on a sermon. But this one was just set up on a tee for me, and so I apologize. Jesus gives us a premise, a problem, and a promise. Number one, the premise. Number one in your outline is the premise. Look at verses 28 through 29 with me. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So other translations will tell us that this was a scribe. Okay, This was a scribe who was asking Jesus uh, this question. Now the scribe had apparently heard last week's confrontation that Jesus had and was very impressed with Jesus. Uh, I tend to think that this is legit. Now, you'll hear this preached a few different ways. Uh, you'll hear this say that, some say that the scribe was kind of being sarcastic here uh, and, and confronting Jesus. I actually don't think that. I, I think he was legitimately impressed with Jesus uh, by last week's confrontation that he had about the afterlife. Uh, so he's impressed. And so we come to Jesus to ask him a difficult question, a legal question. Which is the most important law? Now, this is no small question from a scribe. Why do I say that? Well, the scribes had discovered 613 laws in the Bible that they must follow. 613. This includes the Ten Commandments and 603 more. That's a lot. <laughs> That's a lot of commandments. And so he's asking Jesus, of the hundreds of laws God gave to us, which is the most important? Which is the most important one? Which is the one that defines all the others? The one in which all the others hang? This was a question that the scribes had been debating for a very long time. And no conclusions had really been made about it. And so when this scribe saw Jesus answer so well in last week's confrontation, he thought, hmm, this fella might know the answer to this question, which is the most important law. He thinks Jesus might be able to give him some insight. And boy, is he correct. <laughs> is he correct. Jesus, first of all, gives this scribe a critical premise. A critical premise. It's in verse 29. Jesus says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Jesus' premise is this. There is only one God. One. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, many people in Jesus' day and in our modern day, they take issue with this premise. They don't like it. They think it's too narrow. It's too exclusive. It's too intolerant. 
They believe that all roads lead to heaven. And so you can't say there's only one God. Everybody gets to define truth for themselves. If you're here today and you take that position, here's my response. There are several responses. I can't get into all of them, but I'll give you one. Anytime you have used the word should in your life, you violated that idea. Anytime you've used the word should, you violated your own principle. Because if you say things like you should be kind, or you should be inclusive, or you should be tolerant, you are doing the very thing you're telling Christians not to do. You are claiming to know the truth to know the way in which everyone else should live. But let me ask you, what standard are you using to make that claim? What standard are you using to say you should be like this? What standard are you holding up before us when you say should? Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. So let's say that you're in a conversation with someone you think is selfish. And you tell them, hey, you should be more unselfish. You should be more generous. And they respond with, why? Why? Well, then what are you going to say to them? You might say, well, it's better for society if we're not selfish. And, you know, you'll just feel better about yourself. But what if they respond, uh, I don't give a rat's rear about society, and I feel just fine. Thank you very much. My life's going pretty great. Living selfishly makes me happy. What do you say then? What do you say? You've got nothing left. You see, because in reality, if you're a skeptic here this morning, or you're an all roads lead to heaven person this morning, you have no way to argue with them. You have no standard to hold up and point them to. You've got nothing. Your whole point is built on quicksand. It's built on quicksand. You see, the thoroughgoing immoralist, immoralist, the person who says... I don't really care what society thinks. I don't care about society. Being selfish makes me happy. Being prideful makes me happy. Stealing things from others makes me happy. Abusing other people makes me happy. The thoroughgoing immoralist is extremely hard to refute if there isn't one truth, one way, one God. In fact, he's impossible to refute. So if you don't believe in one God, that's fine. But you need to eliminate the word should from your vocabulary. You have no ground to stand on in order to use it. Should is just your opinion. And you have no right to force it on others. But Christians do have a ground to stand on. It's the ground Jesus gives us in verse 29. 
when he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This is Jesus' premise. There is only one God, one creator, one ruler and sustainer of all things. There is a standard, an objective standard we can point to. And he is the God of Israel. But that premise leads naturally to point number two in your outline. It leads us to the problem. The problem. Let's look at verses 30 through 31. Jesus says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. So here's our problem. If there is only one God, and there is only one moral standard to point to, then you don't get to pick and choose your own set of morals. You don't get to define your own truth. The one God gets to do that. And Jesus here gives us the one God's moral standard. And it's pretty simple. He gives it to us in plain, black and white, explicit language. He tells us what that standard is. And holy moly, is it a doozy. It's a doozy. In fact, it's such a doozy, it is such a shock, that Christians throughout the centuries have resorted to watering it down. Because it's too shocking. It's too in your face. So they don't know what to do with it. <laughs> so they are forced to water down this moral law. If today you visited a hundred different church websites at random, a hundred different church websites at random across the country, I bet half of them would contain on the first page the phrase, love God, love people. I bet over half of them would. Love God, love people. It'll be on their front page. And they'll say that's what they're all about. They are referring, of course, to Jesus' words here in Mark chapter 12. Love God, love people. There's only one problem. That's not what Jesus said. It's not what he said, is it? What did he say? What did he say? He didn't say love God. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. That's what he said. So, what is God's most important command? the one that sums up all the rest, the one in which all the others hang. To perpetually love God with every fiber of your being. 24-7. 24-7. 
It's perfect love is what he's requiring. How many of you would raise your hand right now and say that you obey that command? Yeah, me neither. <laughs> Put my hand down real quick. Me neither. Now, some of you will push back on this and you say, well, now wait a minute, preacher. I try to do that. I try to love God perfectly. Okay. Okay. Can you show me where Jesus said try? Can you show me? Can you show me where he said give it your best shot? Just take a stab at it. Give it the old college try. Can you show me? Can you show me where he said that? No, you can't. Because that's not what he said. He said, the one true God demands perpetual, perfect love from you and nothing less. And hey, Jesus did not invent this, okay? If you notice, there's quotation marks around this verse. Jesus is taking us all the way back to the Old Testament. These were Yahweh's words that he's quoting here. This has always been the standard. The standard has always been perfect, perpetual love for God and nothing less. And also, um, let's just be real for a second, can we? You actually don't try very hard. <laughs> you actually don't try very hard. Your thought life revolves around you. Your activities revolve around you. Your conversations revolve around you. Your desires revolve around you, etc., etc., etc. For the most part, you are consumed with self, not with God. So you do not, in fact, love God with every fiber of your being. And in fact, you don't try very hard to. And neither do I. Neither do I. Oh, but we're not done watering down Jesus' commands yet. So we watered down the first one. We said, you know, Jesus said, love God perfectly and perpetually with every fiber of your being. We just turned that into love God. We're not done. We've got another one to water down. Jesus gave us two commands here, and he says they're both on the same level of importance. There's two, but there's essentially one. They're tied together at the hip, right? So churches will tell you to love God and to love people. Love people. Love people. And by love people, what they mean is be nice. Hmm? Be nice. Be kind. Smile and wave at your neighbor. And hey, if your neighbor needs a hand when he's fixing his truck, give him one. That's what they mean by love people. Be nice. But is that what Jesus said? Is that what Yahweh said? No, it's not. What did Jesus say? He said, love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. Now, that's a lot different than 
be nice. <laughs> Smile and wave. That's a lot different. In other words, love your neighbor with the exact same amount of emotion, care, and thoughtfulness that you have for yourself. How many of you would raise your hand right now and say that you obey that command? Anybody? Yeah, me neither. I don't even know my neighbor's name. I've talked to her like 12 times and I don't, I can't remember her name. <laughs> Drives me crazy. I talked to her for like 30 minutes yesterday. I, I just called her you. Hey, you, how's it going? <laughs> I don't, even, I don't even know my neighbor's name. So, if there is one big God, then we have one big problem. He demands perfect love of himself and radical, selfless love of neighbor. And none of us have done it. None of us. Not even for one second of our lives. And so... Since all of us fall so far short of God's moral standard, woefully, embarrassingly short of God's standard, what is he to do with us? <laughs> what is he to do with us? How could any of us have a relationship with him? How could any of us be a part of his kingdom when we can't even come remotely close to meeting his standard for entrance into his kingdom. Not even remotely close to his standard of righteousness. What does he to do with this? That brings us to your final point. In your outline, the promise. The promise. Look at verses 32 through 34. Verse 32 well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, and with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. So here's my question, the key question of this passage. Why did Jesus say the scribe was so close to the kingdom of God? Why was he so close? Because the scribe noticed something very important. He had profound insight into something. What is that something? Look at verse 33. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, and with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. What was the scribe's insight? He saw that the burnt offerings, the sacrifices, the blood of bulls and lambs, wouldn't cut it. That even the sacrificial system God himself instituted in the Old Testament wasn't enough. One commentator I read said that 
this scribe's position on this probably put him very much on the outside with the other scribes. He probably wasn't allowed to eat lunch with the other scribes. This put him on the outside. He saw that the sacrificial system, the blood of bulls and lambs, would never get us up to God's perfect standard of righteousness. And so Jesus says, ooh, ooh, you're close. You're really close. You're really, really close. Now, why did Jesus just tell the scribe he was close? Why didn't Jesus just tell him the answer? Because just three days after this conversation, Jesus would show him. He would show him the answer. No, the blood of bulls and lambs wouldn't do the trick. But someone else's blood would. On Friday of this very week, at the exact time the Passover lambs were being slain in preparation for the sacrifices, another lamb was being slain outside the city on a hill called Calvary. And his blood would remove our sin as far as the east is from the West. And his blood would make us righteous. It would. Do you know what was happening at the cross? <laughs> Where we could not be obedient. Jesus was. He was. Paul writes in Philippians 2 verse 8, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. One theologian puts it like this. He says, quote, Do you want to know the greatness of Christ? Think about this. There has never been a human being on this planet of all the thousands of years of humanity, of all the billions of people who have walked this earth, who for one fraction of a second loved the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. Not one. To even suggest that you have is paramount to blasphemy. And yet, there was never a fraction of a second of Jesus' life where he did not love the Lord his God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. End quote. You didn't love God perfectly, but Jesus did. You didn't have radical selfless love for neighbor, but Jesus did. And incredibly, by grace, through faith, all of Jesus' righteousness is credited to your account. <laughs> Don't believe me? 
Let's see what Paul has to say in Romans verse, Romans chapter 4, verse 5. Here's what he says. Paul says, And to the one who does not work, but believes in Him who justifies the ungodly, His faith is counted to Him as righteousness. His faith. His faith is counted to Him as righteousness. So what is the incredible promise of the one God? The incredible promise is this, that He Himself will provide what He requires. He will provide what He requires. He requires perfect obedience. And so, He sent His perfectly obedient Son to be obedient in our place. The one true God requires our death to pay for our sin. And so, He sent His spotless Lamb to die for our sin in our place. Your sin is not loaded on your shoulders. It is carried by the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And His verdict from Calvary's hill is this. All your sins are forgiven. And all my righteousness is yours. <laughs> That's a heck of a verdict from the one true God Himself. You see, because what God requires, God Himself provides. Just as He did with Abraham, after He told him to offer His son Isaac as a sacrifice. So Abraham gathered the wood. He gathered everything needed, including his son. And Abraham climbed that high hill, built an altar, laid his son on the altar. And just as he descended the death blow with his knife, God intervened and stayed Abraham's hand and said, no, Abraham. A sacrifice is required. But it won't be your son who dies on this hill. It'll be my son. It'll be my son who dies on this hill. Indeed, a couple thousand years later, after Abraham climbed that hill, on that very spot, on that exact same hill, the death blow would come down on God's own Son. And this time, God would not stop it. He would not stop it. Why? Because God provides what God requires. God required a death to pay for our sin. And so God provided one in His Son. This is the relationship between the law and the gospel. What the law demands, the gospel gives freely. 
The law says do. The gospel says done. The law reveals our sin. The gospel removes our sin. The law kills us. The gospel raises us to new life. My fellow believers, hear me. Please hear me. We are not law people. We are not. We are gospel people. We are people of the gospel. Because apart from grace, we are damned. We are damned. So as I asked at the beginning, why do we need grace in the first place? Because the law damns us. It condemns us to death and to eternal hell. The law damns us. We fell a trillion miles short of God's requirements for entrance into his kingdom. We were wandering hopelessly in the dark. And so, if we were to be saved at all, God himself had to make the trillion mile trek from heaven to earth to put us on his shoulders and bring us home. And that's exactly what he did. And that, my friends, is what grace is all about. That's what grace is all about. How God provided what he required from us. And as when we were lost in the dark, he himself came to bring us home. The hymn writer puts it well saying, were it not for grace, I can tell you where I'd be. Wandering down some pointless road to nowhere with my salvation up to me. I know how that would go. The battles I would face. Forever running, but losing the race. Were it not for grace.